Today's message, I called it uh, the battle for unity, and we're going to be starting over in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to talk about the armor of God. So, in Ephesians 6 verse 10, it starts like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devils of schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that you in the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychius, the dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. So bear it in mind that this letter, like all of what we call books in the, in the, in the Bible, was just a letter. There was a time where it didn't have subtitles like the armor of God or chapter headings. And so the thoughts flow. And so I want to ask you to consider why to consider the context of why there's this call to the spiritual battle. So uh, Elias had taken us a, a couple weeks ago into the idea of hierarchy and submission and, and households and parents and slaves and master. And then it jumps into this, right? And, and I want you to think about it. I want us to think about why there, why invoke the spiritual battle immediately following that. So as he concludes, he brings, together, brings all these images of a Roman soldier in mind. And then he, 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 throughout the, 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 the letter, he's praying for other kind of deep, cohesive things, for the church to understand his love. He prays for the church to understand its divine purpose and its power. He talks about salvation by grace in order to accomplish good works. He talks about tearing down dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentiles. He refers to it as a mystery. And I was reading uh, this, this cool book, uh, Stages of Faith, last year that was talking about something is a mystery uh, when it's a problem that we're internal to. That's a problem that we're in it and we're trying to solve it at the same time. The church is, marriage is, right? You're in it, but, but you're also trying to work on it. And that's how, he, how it was defined in this particular book, which I thought was interesting. So he brings it back to individual households as a building block of the church. And then this idea of slaves and masters. And again, bearing in mind 
no, no subtapter, uh, headings and subtitles. It flows into this idea of the spiritual battle. So typically in these uh, Pauline epistles, they're correcting an issue. They're addressing a heresy or a problem. This one was just encouragement. It was just, this is how you live your life as a Christian. It was believed to be a circular letter, meaning it wasn't just for the church in Ephesus. And that's indicated because usually he greets certain people specifically at the end of, uh, end of each um, other, other epistle. But in this situation, he, uh, he, he left that open. And, and wanted it to be circled, um, circulated. So uh, when it gets to this idea of submission and then it flows into this spiritual battle, what do you think that's about? What do, what do you think that that's about? Uh, and, 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 we, and this came from chapter 4 talking about unity, and then this was the practical outgrowth of unity, that, that idea of, of, uh, of, of submitting in roles. But have you ever noticed how hard that submission part is? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody? How, how, how irrational you can get, one can get? How this fear of annihilation can kick in? Even, even when it's not an actual, it's not actually that level of danger? And this is why I believe Paul invokes this spiritual battle, because if we're not aware, if we're not spiritually aware, if we're not putting on our spiritual armor, that fear owns us. That fear eats us for lunch. That specific fear. How many human atrocities are, are committed because of this fear? Because of this fear. When someone decides it's either them or me, Right. That then, then it's on and all kinds of things on the table. I just happened last night to watch that movie Oppenheimer. Have you seen that? Yes. Wow. Yep. That's tremendous to to wrestle with the science and a decision that would wipe out hundreds of thousands of people in a day. Yep. Two hundred thousand people in two days. And then half the reason that this would cost less life than if we fought. Wow, tremendous. But when we have this fear of annihilation and we decide that it's either us or them, it it just kicks in. We become a little bit, at least, possessed. I think about some of the ugliest times in our history have been done that way. When you think about the violence committed in things like the civil rights movement, it was fear. It was fear that if those children go to school with my children, something will happen to my children. If you can imagine. But this is the irrational, irrational places where people would be taken to. But it's not just them. Right. Haven't you experienced that? Yeah. Haven't you been so afraid of something or someone that you criticized them, demonized them, maybe fought them, maybe oppressed them, maybe talked about uh, a group of people, whether, you know, it's, it's, it's police, whether it's, you know, people that look this way or people that look that way. You lump them into a category, you label them dangerous, and, and you're possessed by your desire to not be annihilated. This is the seat I put before you that this is the battlefront of the spiritual battle. Here's why I think that. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which, um, which really is Jesus' manifesto. This is his orientation to the kingdom. This is day one. Uh, actually, we can look at a passage in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. 
And it's also uh, a parallel verse in Matthew 5, but we're going to look at the Luke 6 version. This is what he says. He says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Uh, give to everyone as he asked you and anyone who takes what belongs to you. Do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good those to, to, those, to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I mean, isn't that triggering? <laughs> this, whole, this whole passage is triggering. It, who does this? Who does this? I tell you, you don't do it on your flesh. You don't do it in your... Every human part of you wants to defy what we just read, right? But Jesus intentionally, I believe, engages this. First, this is orientation day one. Guys, this is how the kingdom is. This is how we're going to tell us from the world is when we're triggered, this is what we're going to do instead of that. Furthermore, turn with me over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, speaking of being triggered here, let's, let's read this passage together. <clears throat> Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her uh, and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So it calls out that feeling. Husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you, the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So, all right. So this is um, Peter, Apostle Peter, teaching uh, to uh, a believing wife about how to reach out to her unbelieving husband, literally in the context. The word there is the same word for submit that's in Ephesians 5, hippotasso, it just is. And, and then it talks about, for the, that was for the wives, and then for the husbands it says also be considerate and, be, and in that way submit to needs too, in the same way it says. Now, here's the thing, here's my point here, um, that where it says in the same way at the beginning of the instruction to the wives and it says in the instruction to, to the husbands, I always thought that in the same way was referring back to the wives, but it says it to the, to the, uh, to the, to the wives too, 
So what is it referring to? Let's scroll back to verse 23 of chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. What is it pointing back to? It's pointing back to the cross. And, 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 and I know it doesn't make sense on a human level, but neither does getting crucified. <laughs> right? It, 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 um, a matter of fact, I, I, feel, I feel very comforted by a couple things. One, he's saying how hard it is <laughs> to, 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 to be in either one of these roles. He's comparing both being a husband and being a wife to being submissive like Jesus going to the cross. Uh, I think he's also saying how he did it. It says he entrusted himself to him as judges justly, right? You have to look past the oppressor, right? And, there's a, and part of the, this is part of the challenge, too, is there's a difference between submission and oppression that gets confused, right? When someone does it because someone told them to, that's oppression, right? When someone uh, in, a, in a marital context submits because my husband showed me this passage, that's oppression, right? But if someone chooses to give themselves over to a greater cause, right? In this case, it was Jesus giving himself over to our salvation. Yeah, there were men hitting him. There were men insulting him. There were men cursing him. And, and, but he was giving himself over to the greater cause. Now, I, I, can, I can feel, are you going to qualify that is the question I'm seeing on faces? But I, I'm not going to. I feel like that's the Spirit's job. Right. If, if there were people in the first century who gave up their life, yeah. who, who watched their kids get fed to lions, yeah. who themselves were crucified, who am I to say it doesn't mean X, Y, and Z? Right. This is what the Lord said. Moreover, this is what he did. Yeah. This is what he did. Amen. So he submitted to the greater cause of our salvation. And he obviously setting us an example and then calls us to hippotasso all over the place in all these different contexts and in all these different places it will because there's different things that are going to be triggering for each one of us there's going to be different places that are going to be hard for each one of us but all of us need to do it it is the way if we're going to follow jesus if we're going to follow jesus and here's his grand purpose i love this his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the world. No. no, to our friends around us, to our friends and neighbors, to the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose uh, uh, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, we've been enlisted in a battle. Yeah. We have been enlisted in a battle. But our weapons are what he talks about in chapter six. We are indeed in the middle of a battle and, and it's and it's beautifully won through the subjugation of self. Through me exercising dominion, not over another man who I perceive as a threat to me, but over my own sinful nature, over my own fear. Right. 
and being able to walk into that. This is how I glorify God. And, and, and mind you, this is the cost of admission for unity. We will not be unified unless we manage our triggers. We need to manage our triggers to be unified. There is no other way. If you're just being with people who agree with you already, if you're agreeing with someone you already agree with, you're not doing this. You're not doing this. So Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, at the end of describing the armor, he says this really interesting thing. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, that word again, as I should. Let me ask you this. So when he says at the beginning of this, Pray in the spirit on all kinds of occasions. What is that? Is that different than just praying? Praying in the spirit? Right? For, for whatever this is in the spirit, that phrase, there's something associated with being bold. As he mentions that a couple of times here, right? That, that words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray specifically that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Hold that thought. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, there's a pattern actually of this uh, throughout. Down in verse 8. So Paul and uh, I'm sorry, Peter and John had uh, just uh, been beaten and imprisoned uh, for uh, for preaching. And 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 then they were on trial before the Sanhedrin, uh, verse five. And then down in verse eight, it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed and know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Later on in that same passage, they took the took it back to the, the rest of the church. And now the church starts to pray, verse 23. Uh, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God's sovereign Lord. They said, you made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything uh, in them. You spoke by, by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, David, our father. And then they pray there. And then it says down in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were shaped, meeting was shaken and they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Okay. So uh, just to kind of go over to Acts 6 here. you could turn with me there. Verse 
So this is, um, I'll just read to you here. So uh, in Acts 6 uh, is where the, the deacons were appointed, Stephen and the rest of the deacons. It says in verse 3 and 4, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and, they, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, in verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of great God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people, a sign of the Spirit. And then we know in chapter 7, he basically takes this group of Pharisees and he tells them about themselves. He confronts them with a retelling of their whole history, which showed that this person of a, 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 a Grecian Jew knew the Bible, knew the story, really what, what just thoroughly knew it. And then at the end, verse 54, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were all stoning him, Stephen prayed, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So the point is this. Do you see the effect of the Holy Spirit? Do you see the effect of being in the spirit? What, is it, what does it create in people? What do you see? Boldness. Boldness. Instead of fear. The presence and the filling of the Spirit displaces fear. It displaces, it makes people not afraid to lose their life, right? That they can do the right thing even when there's going to be consequences. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do that on your own, church. You will not do that on your own. And this is why we're led to consider the spiritual battle and pray in the Spirit on all kinds of equipment. And by the way, do you see how possessed they were out of their fear? Do you see what it did to them, right? Fear can take us some really, really ugly places, but the work of the Spirit is to displace that. So let's talk a little bit about the church, the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. If you turn with me over to uh, Acts chapter 19. So... The, the church in Ephesus is actually one of the most documented, I, mean, I think actually the most documented church in the New Testament. It's referred to a lot in Acts, in Corinthians, in Revelations. And uh, this particular scene here is a really interesting window to the culture of the church in Ephesus. We're going to pick up in verse 23. At that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and related trades and said, Man, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no, are no gods at all. There is danger not only to our trade... Uh, 
that that trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. People seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. This looks a lot like that other scene in Stephen, doesn't it? Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not would, would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and do not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are the pearl councils. They can press their charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After this, he dismissed the assembly. So you see the pattern here, right? The fear that was activated. Uh, we're going to lose our economic advantage. You know, we're, we're gonna, it's going to hurt our economy. They're going to discredit our goddess, right? These are the things that drove them to become a mob. They became, they became a riotous mob. No, that's definitely something that, that we want to be aware of. So this city, Ephesus, it was a thriving port in the first century, situated on this east-west east road system. It was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. At its peak, it had a population of about 250,000 people. Uh, the church here in Ephesus was started about 15 to 20 years after Jesus' passing during our Paul's second missionary journey. As was mentioned, there was a temple there to the goddess uh, Diana in Greek. Roman, uh, uh, Romans called her Artemis and uh, the god of, goddess of fertility. And uh, tradition holds that there was a meteor that had fallen and, and, and that's what they turned into this statue and a temple uh, for, the, for the goddess Artemis. That, that's why they talk about falling from the sky. Um, this temple was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and we can see the pride that they had in this when they said throughout the province of Asia and the world, she's being worshipped. And, um, and then they looked at Paul and said that he had convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. And what was the message that he did that with? Uh, human gods are no gods at all. That was, that was the, the focus of his message. Can you imagine that the church had such impact that disrupted the economy? There were so many converts. There was such a, a change in the, in the tone around them, the, 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 the atmosphere, the culture through their preaching and teaching and whatever they lived out, that it shifted the economy of the area, calling this meeting 
of these artisans together because we can't, we got to stop this. This is too much. We, we, we can't let this happen. And um, so Priscilla and Aquila were converted here and they were leaders there. Timothy led there. Uh, then the apostle John later in life, actually tradition holds that he had Jesus' mom live there actually. And uh, you see this deep bond that, that's, that's, that happens between them. In chapter 20 of Acts, it talks about this farewell to the Ephesian elders, that they were really deeply bonded. Verse 20, Acts 20, verse 36, it says, When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to his ship. So, I wonder, along with you, how the church did in following their instructions. Aren't we seeing the fruit of this letter? Aren't we seeing, you know, Paul gave it to them as a, as, a, as a young church, but this is decades later. This is who they've become. This is what they've become. But we have the benefit of knowing how they became that way. We got the same letter that they did. That's powerful. That's powerful. The same instruction. So obviously it begs the question, what could we be like as a church if we submit ourselves to this direction? If we focus on being filled with the spirit, especially when we're fearful, especially when we're fearful to know that, that was God's antidote, not to fix this. I mean, you know, this isn't to say that you don't ever mobilize about anything, but our primary instrument, our primary instrument is to fix ourselves. And by the way, you intervene from a whole different place when it's from a place of peace, not fear, right? If you're going to advocate and you do it from a place of fear, that's going to look like fighting, right? But if you advocate and you do it from a place of peace and resolve, and again, I can't, you know, images of the civil rights movement, Edmund Pettus Bridge, Bloody Sunday, people wielding billy clubs, fire hoses, dogs, while they sing, we shall overcome. What in the world? What in the world? I, you know, and who knows? I, I want to be like that, don't you? Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a key cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy, holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
Unity isn't easy, church. It's actually a battle. It's actually a battle. Nothing more difficult to conquer than our own human fear, our fear of annihilation. If what will happen if the plan doesn't work, if it doesn't go the way I want to, I don't see how that's going to work. Submission is not a dirty word. It's actually a key. It's actually the key for all of us, each of us being like Christ all over the place, a lot. If we're going to be unified, we're going to do that a lot. Uh, and it's Jesus' calling card. We, if we're going to be his followers, and, and what did we say last week, Brian? Do what he did and spend time with him and, and, and do the things he did. I'm sorry, I meant to quote that. But, but if we're going to do that, this is what he did. He inspired us by his example. And, and can we be inspired by the impact of the church in Ephesus, that how, how that the fruit of what they did in following this letter. And I'm sure they weren't without struggle. Revelation talks about this struggle, but, but, they, but they must have been inspired and led by this message. So in a world full of fear, it's our goal to be filled with courage and peace and compassion. That will come from the work of the Holy Spirit, being filled in the Spirit. You can't do it. I can't do it on my own. We need to put on the full armor of God and pray in the spirit. Let's die to ourselves by the power of Jesus' spirit and be built together, church. Thank you. Yeah.